0: I had no idea two weeks ago when the Lord dropped this word in my heart for today. All the events that would take place, all the circumstances and situations that would evolve to bring us here to this place this morning. As I listen to the things that have been said this morning, I cannot help but believe that the Lord dropped this word in my heart for this moment. So I'm going to pray, I'm going to read a portion of scripture for you. And we are going to hear what the Lord would have us to hear this morning. So, Father, we've already talked to you. But that's okay, because we should pray without ceasing. So we come before your throne boldly one more time. And we ask, my Father, that you would give us ears to hear what you would speak to us by your Spirit. And that we would not just be hearers of your word, but Father, we would leave this place today and we would become doers of your word. That we would implement and activate the truth of who you are into the way that we do life. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this house. We ask that you move in whatever way pleases you and brings honor and glory to the great name of Jesus. For it is in his excellent name, the name of Yeshua Amashiach, that we pray, amen. If you have your Bible with you, you can find Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. If you do not have your device or your Bible with you, I know that that is gonna be projected behind me. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He began or continued asking his disciples, who do people say That the Son of Man is. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is a familiar passage of Scripture to almost all of us in this room. What I hope to do today is to Open this scripture to us and look at it from a little bit of a different perspective. My husband, Stuart, who is the very handsome man sitting there on the second row. My husband, Stuart, had the privilege as a child of getting to spend time with both sets of his grandparents. In Jonesboro, Texas, he had Papa Jack and Mama Nell. In Conroe, Texas, he had Mama Golding and Pawpaw. I think this particular event took place when he was spending the summer with Papa and Mama Golding. I think he probably was about to get on their last nerve as a little boy and was asking them questions, one right after another. And finally, Mama Nell said something quite profound. She looked at him and she said, Stuart, I believe that you are asking questions that you already know the answer to. After 20 years of being married to this man, my husband still asks questions that he knows the answer to. I open up with that little story because Jesus is going to ask these questions, not because he needs the information. He's not going to ask these questions because there's something that he doesn't know. He is asking these questions to get his, his disciples to move into a place of reflection and to think about not just the question, but how they're answering it and why they are answering it the way that they are. If you look throughout the pages of the New Testament, in particular Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Revelation, Jesus asked exactly 307 questions. That's quite a number. Of questions for a three-year tenure of ministry out of those 307 questions if you overlap Matthew Mark Luke and John and just look at unique questions you can find 135 unique questions that were asked by the Lord Jesus in true rabbinic fashion that of a master teacher Jesus asked questions not because he needed the answers to those questions he asked questions to challenge familiar ways of thinking, believing to a more challenging and authentic way of perceiving and engaging in, wo- in both the physical and the spiritual realm. When we ask questions, typically we ask questions for information. When Jesus asks questions, it's to provoke transformation in our hearts, in our, in our lives. When we ask questions, we're looking for answers When Jesus asks questions, he is looking for awareness, not his awareness, but to make us aware. Jesus asks questions to confront the listener with their own thought process, their preconceptions, their assumptions, and their beliefs. The two questions that I want us to spend a few moments today looking at are these two questions, who do men say that I am, and who do you say that I am? The context of this question is just as important as the question itself. Jesus didn't ask this question in just any context. He took them to a place called Caesarea Philippi, also known as Banias. And even before Banyas, it was called Panias because there the god Pan was worshipped and had a sanctuary built to him. In this place, this place of Caesarea Philippi, This place, do you have the slide up there? Thank you. And this is what Caesarea Philippi would look like. There you can see the enclaves that where the different idols and the different images of the various pagan gods would be placed so that the people could come there and worship. Jesus was intentional about his location. There with the religious backdrops and the political powers of the known world represented, there he asked his question. You could see in one of these enclaves, there would have been an image of the Roman god Jupiter. The Romans worshiped power and government. They were known for their building, but their building came at the expense of oppressing and forcing people to do the work of of an oppressed people. So the Romans were an oppressive lot using military violence and power to get their work done and to build their buildings and to do the things that they were going to do, like the building of the Roman road. The Roman image, or the image that reflected Rome, was that of an eagle. Not just any eagle, but you'll notice that this Roman image of the eagle, the talons will be out because the Romans wanted the world to know that when they saw this eagle, that Rome was like that eagle with its sharp talons out, ready to fly down and swoop on anyone that tried to resist Roman rule and government. Not only would the Romans be represented at Caesarea Philippi, but the Greeks would be there as well. By this time, the Greeks had died as a political entity, but as a spiritual entity and as an entity propagating ideas, they would still be alive and well. For the Greeks, their image would be an owl because the Greeks worshipped wisdom and knowledge above all else and gave to us philosophy. Another thing that you would see at Banias would be the gates of hell. The gates of hell is not just a reference to the literal gates of hell, but it was a reference to what you see here. This is a cave or a cavern. And at one time, water would gush out of this cavern. It was believed that this was the gates of hell by the ancient world because in excavation, this pit was bottomless and there could be no measurement of it. But sometime right before the birth of Jesus, there was a major earthquake and during that earthquake, a number of large rocks and boulders shut the water source. And now it's just a cavern. Jesus was definitely intentional about this location. Using the backdrop of religious and political powers of the known world, the violence and the aggression of Rome, the intellectual and the spiritual um, um, arrogance of Greece, the fables and the intellectual or the spiritual manipulation of the Jews, Jesus asked the question of his disciples, who do men say that I am? Jesus didn't use some pristine, perfect environment. He didn't use some sweet, precious spiritual context where angels are singing and you can sense and feel the presence of God. He takes his disciples to one of the darkest, most vile places of the known world at that time, and he asks them that, that question, who do men say that I am? Most of you are aware of a gentleman by the name of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett is considered to be one of the wealthiest men in the world. At this point in time, at least the last time I checked, Warren Buffett is worth $82 billion. In the 20th century and into the 21st century, he is known as being one of the most successful investors of all times. Warren Buffett said the worst economic times make for the greatest investment opportunities. Now if I can, let me put a Marty spin on that idea. The most vile, the most evil, the most wretched moments in history make for the greatest times of prophetic living and prophetic declaration. We are living in a moment, much like this backdrop of Banius or Caesarea Philippi. We are living in a moment where it seems that every God is being worshipped except for the one true living God. Where every voice is heard except for the voice of those who would cry out as one from the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We are living in such a society that deception and darkness is all around us. This is not the moment for the church to run and hide in some proverbial cave. This is time for us to stand up and shout from the mountaintops, Jesus Christ, he is Lord and he is Lord alone. This text indicates that this is not the first time Jesus has asked his disciples this question. Luke chapter 9, verse 18, puts this verb in an aorist tense, which means that it's an ongoing or a continuous action. Jesus continued asking his disciples this question. There in the background of the greatest powers of the known world, both spiritual and political, he asked that question. If Jesus were to stand among us this morning and ask this question, who do men say that I am? Who does culture say that I am? How would we answer? Well, the philosophers of our age would say that Jesus is wisdom and knowledge. Scientists would say that he is a mathematical formula. Entertainment would say that he is the freedom of artistic expression and the freedom of speech, cast morals and ethics to the wind. Liberals would say that Jesus is social justice and love without boundaries. Conservatives would say that Jesus is the protection of a way of life and traditional values. Fundamentalists would say that he is rules and regulations. The judicial system would say that he is law and protocol. Wall Street would say that he is business and financial prosperity. Theologians, especially those that are a part of a more liberal system, they would say that Jesus is an object of study and the source of much conversation. Public broadcast station says that Jesus is historical, but we need to remove the miraculous elements and demythologize the life of Christ in order to get at the truth of who he is. Atheists would say that he is our imaginary friend. That in essence, he is dead. Agnostics would say that he is unprovable. Everyone in culture has an opinion about Jesus Christ. If we were to remove one word, we could be at peace with everyone around us. Not a real peace, it would be a false peace because it would be a peace built on a lie. If we said that Jesus is a God, a Lord, a Messiah, then we would be acceptable to everyone. But that is not our confession. Our confession is that He is the one, the only begotten Son of the Father, that He is the only Lord and ruler of all that is. (laughs) Culture will have its opinions. Culture will have its declarations. The disciples of Jesus gave three answers or three basic answers. They said, some say you are John the Baptist. Well, that's a good guess, but eh, wrong answer. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the one that was to come. Jesus was a forerunner of no one because he is the one. Elijah, some would say, You are Elijah. He is the prophet of power and fire and the miraculous. And I think maybe some of the disciples may have actually believed that Jesus was the reincarnation or the rebirthing of Elijah the prophet. Because in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, when they're passing through the Samaritans and the Samaritans do not receive them the way that they want to be received, the disciples ask Jesus to call fire down from heaven and to scorch the Samaritans. And Jesus has to tell them, I have not come to destroy but to save Another answer, some say that you are Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. In Jeremiah chapter seven, we certainly see Jesus standing very close and echoing the life of Jeremiah because in chapter seven of Jeremiah, this brave and bold prophet stands not just anywhere, he stands in the gates of the temple and declares that God is going to destroy the temple. Jeremiah, much like Jesus, is not afraid to confront the religious and the political realms of his day. The disciples were quick to answer this question because, you see, it's always easier to deflect our ideas and our opinions onto others. If I tell you what someone else thinks, then I have no personal risk in that situation. So I can talk to you all day long about what someone else thinks. And that's what the disciples were doing. I think Jesus asked this first question Because he wanted his disciples to, number one, be aware, culturally aware of what was going on around them. To be in the world, but not of the world. To have the conversation, to know what the world is thinking, to be aware of what the world is doing without thinking and doing along with it. He also asked that question so that the disciples would realize that public opinion is always trying to form and inform their opinion and relationship with Jesus. The answers of Elijah, Jeremiah, and John the Baptist, they're okay. They're right in a few elements, but they are missing the biggest and most important element of all. All three of these figures are only human. They could only point to the one who would come, but they were not the one. They could not say, they could not redeem, they could not forgive, they could not transform a human heart. So Jesus asked the next question, who do you say that I am? In asking the first question, this band of 12 who've been walking and doing life with Jesus for almost three years, they're about to be confronted with the contents of their own heart. There's a sudden shift from popular beliefs of culture to the real content of their hearts. Who do you say that I am? That question stings to the core and it leaves no quarter for hiding behind what everyone else says. Jesus is asking one of the most important questions to the disciples that were with him then and to those who will follow him now. This is the most important question that will ever be asked. Who do you say that Jesus is? This passage has predominantly been used historically for evangelistic preaching, calling the lost to a saving relationship with Jesus. I am certainly not opposed to the lost getting saved even this morning. But my focus is on those of us who are followers of Jesus. The men that were presented with this question, they were in the inner circle of Jesus. They were Jesus' followers. They already had a relationship with him. If they were unable to answer this question, they were going to be at risk and they were going to fall prey to the deception of contemporary social, political, and religious opinions. The time of sitting on any proverbial fence was over for them with the asking of this question. Jesus knew that in the next few months preceding his crucifixion, that his disciples were going to be tried to the core of their being. And if they could answer this question, then they would not be moved, at least not for long, by the events of culture, economics, politics, and religion. C.S. Lewis, who is one of my favorite writers of all times, absolutely one of my favorite Christian philosophers, in his book, Mere Christianity, he says that when being confronted with this question, who do you say that Jesus is, there are only three logical answers. He's a lunatic. He is self-deceived, psychotic, schizophrenic, mentally disturbed. He is a lunatic, declaring himself to be the son of God. Or he's a liar. He knows that he's not the son of God, and he is making all of this up and packaging such a story and such a line of thinking so as to deceive deceive people and to get them to follow after him. Or he really is Lord. He really is who he says he is. He really is the only begotten of the Father. He really is the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world. He really is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is Lord. For those of us who are saved, we are not in this trilemma of C.S. Lewis. We've already confessed that he is Lord. But I do think that from time to time, our thinking and understanding of the Son of God can become muddled and displaced. As 21st century followers of Jesus, I believe that we are being called upon by the Holy Spirit to answer this question for ourselves. Who do you say that I am? Against the backdrop of a sin-sick world, we are in desperate need to re-examine our own hearts and see if we are allowing the culture around us to form and inform our understanding of Jesus or are we receiving revelation from the Father himself about this Lord that we serve? There is no witness more authoritative than that of Scripture. Let's allow the written Word of God to inform us and to form us for a moment. Let's ask the book itself, who is this Son of God? Who is this Jesus? If we were to go to the book of Genesis and stand there at the beginning of creation and we were to say, who is this Jesus? Creation, who do you say that Jesus is? creation would respond. He is the powerful word of God by which all is created. If you were to move a little bit farther and you would ask Adam and Eve after their fall, who is Jesus to you? They would say, he is the promise of redemption. He is the one who covers and makes a way for us. If you were to move forward a little bit more, And go to Hagar and ask Hagar, who is the son of God, Hagar? Hagar would say, he is the one who sees me and takes care of me. Fast forward a little bit more and let's go to Sarah. Sarah, who do you say the son of God is? And Sarah would say, he is the one that took the dead womb of an old woman and put life in it and brought forth a child. If you were to ask Abraham, who is the son of God? Abraham would say, he is the ram caught in the thicket. He is Jehovah-Jireh. He is the one who provides. He is El Shaddai. If you were to ask Moses... Moses, what say you? Who is this king of glory? Who is this Jesus? Moses would say, he is the fire that cannot be quenched. He is the one who calls and sustains. He is a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He is the one who opens up the rock and covers me while his glory passes over. If you were to ask Joshua, who is this son of man? Joshua would say, he is the one who holds the sun and the moon in place so that we can know victory. What about Ruth? Ruth, who do you say the son of man is? Oh, he's my kinsman redeemer. He's the one who buys me from slavery and makes me who I am today and puts me in a position of honor and not dishonor. Let's move on. What about Isaiah? Isaiah, who do you say the son of man is? Oh, he's the holy one of Israel. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He's the one whose train fills the temple with his glory. He's the one who calls. And whenever he calls, I can't help but say yes. What about Jeremiah? Who does Jeremiah declare this God to be? Who do you say, Jeremiah, is the son of man? Oh, he's the one with whom nothing, absolutely nothing is impossible. What about Habakkuk? He is the one who gives strength and makes my feet like hinds' feet and causes me to walk on high places. What about Matthew? Matthew is going to declare him to be king. Mark's going to say he is the perfect man. Luke is going to identify him as the physician and healer and the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. John's going to understand him as the one that was before the beginning. Peter is going to boldly proclaim him to be the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. Paul is going to say he is the resurrected one and the one that's seated at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews is going to refer to him as the great high priest. The book of Revelation is going to boldly declare who he is. In chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs were white like wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waves. In his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, if you believe in the witness of scripture regarding his nature and his kingdom, then here's some things you've got to know. We believe that his government, or we believe that the government of our lives rests upon his shoulders and that he is the sovereign God and he has everything under control. If you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you can trust him to work out the mess that is our lives, our culture, our society. Until we can move from what everyone else says about him to what we know to be true, we will continue waffling in the streams of public opinion and cultural trends. He is the Christ, the Messiah the one that scripture foretold. He is the son uniquely begotten of the father and there is no one else like him. He is God incarnate. He is the living God. Our God is alive and well and sovereign and he has the affairs of man in the palm of his hand. In closing this message today, I have to ask myself and I have to ask you, If we really believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if we really believe the witness of Scripture and even the experiences of our own lives, then why are we worried? Why are we stressed over political issues? Because if He is King of kings and Lord of lords, it doesn't make any difference who's sitting in the White House. It doesn't make any difference what political tag gets hung on you or on me because he is king of kings and Lord of lords. Church, for too long, we have treated Jesus as though he were a part of public opinion and we've allowed our lives and our choices to bend and to bow not to who he is but to who culture has informed us that he is. And this morning, I just want to be A crystal clear laser of light declaring to you that he is the son of God. He is the Messiah, the Christ. See, I don't get saved in the name of anyone except for the name of Jesus. It is only in the name of Jesus whereby men must be saved, men including women as well. It is at the name of Jesus, not some political candidate. It's in the name of Jesus that every knee bows and every tongue confesses to the glory of God the Father that he is Lord. Two invitations this morning. If you have never said, thou art the Christ." the son of the living God, this is your morning and this is your opportunity. Invitation number two, if you like me are in need of taking another look and asking the father to separate me just for a moment from what political and cultural and religious voices around me are saying and look once again and realize that he is the sovereign Lord of all, this invitation is for you as well. So if you are in any two groups, while Brent's making his way up, if you are in any of those two groups, I'm going to ask you just to stand where you are with me this morning. And I am standing. Lord Jesus, here we are. We confess to you, Father, that it's so easy for us to get involved with what other people say about you without ever taking the time to ask the question, who do I say that you are? And this morning, my Father, we are are standing to confess and to declare that we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we ask you, my Father, to take that commitment, to take that confession, that declaration, and work it deep into our hearts, and work it out through the way that we live our lives. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.